Hello, everybody. This is Viktor Kovalenko from the United States. You are listening to my podcast about Ukraine and in particular about the Russian war against this young European country. I create this to help my former homeland informationally, because before the US I lived and worked as a journalist in Ukraine for many years. Also I served in the Ukrainian military, defending Ukraine from the first Russian invasion. Today the guest of my podcast is Natalia Chernyshova from the University of Winchester, England. She is a senior lecturer in modern history. I am very glad to have Natalia as a guest because we are going to discuss and understand the role of Belarus in the Russian war against Ukraine. My first question is about how this relatively small country between Ukraine, Poland, Lithuania and Russia that gained independence from Moscow after the collapse of the Soviet Union now is helping Russia to attack its neighbor. What went wrong with the post-Soviet transition in Belarus? Belarus certainly had a difficult post-Soviet transition, but then the same could be said about almost all the former Soviet republics. What is not really the case, I think, is that that Belarus has remained stuck in the Soviet past. There are some elements of of truth in, in that. I think on the whole, this label does not fully reflect the complexity of the reality of Belarus in, in the last 30 years or so. Certainly with the arrival of Lukashenko to power, much was made of Soviet legacy. Um, It was a kind of a winning formula for a populist politician like Lukashenko because Belarus actually did rather well out of the Soviet project in the post-war era. And and that's important to note in in the last decades of the Soviet Union, especially in the 60s and 70s, when it was something of a flagship of Soviet modernity. And that's you know, relative economic prosperity, social cohesion, international prestige, all of those things kind of look good from the vantage point of the 90s, which, of course, as we know, were difficult. And Lukashenko was very attuned to that. And so what he tried to offer Belarusian society was a kind of social contract that promised economic stability, promised social equity. Both of those pledges were built on the Soviet model, kind of achieved by keeping most of the economy under state control. But it also promised Belarusians peace, public respect for Soviet history, especially important in terms of war memory and job security for those who worked in the state sector of the economy. Of course, the flip side of that was repression, elimination of political opponents, harassment of non-state media, harassment of civil society, the use of the security apparatus, for example, crackdown on any public dissent or opposition. And of course, The very key element of that, the dark side of the contract, was unchallenged, unrestricted rule by Lukashenko himself. I think the important distinction to make when we talk about Belarus um, and its transition in the last 30 years is between Lukashenko and his regime and Belarusian society. And it's true that for a while this contract worked. It appealed to many in Belarus. They were prepared to compromise on democratic freedoms, democratic rights. To them, these things may have sounded very abstract and did not mean quite the same things as they mean to us, or perhaps did not mean quite as much as a job security. But more recently, this social contract in Belarus began to disintegrate. Um, For one, the government was failing to uphold its promises, but also Belarusian society did not remain static in these 30 or so years and changed a lot since the 1990s, but especially in the last 10 years or so. Belarusian society changed, I'd say, a good deal. And one thing that changed, for example, was its reliance on state paternalism. So Belarusians became more self-reliant in the last 10 years. And to give you another example, and this is kind of related to the first 
in July last year, in one broad sweep, the government in Belarus shut down about 50 NGOs, non-government organizations. Um, this wasn't the first case of such harassment, of course, but what it tells us is, of course, you know, on the one hand, it tells us the story of repression, destruction of civil society in Belarus. But it also points towards the fact that, you know, there were these 50 NGOs and many more before them. They existed until quite recently. And that indicates that there was, in fact, a, quite an active NGO sector in the country that had recently been completely demolished. My next question is about protests against Belarus President Alexander Lukashenko in 2020. As we saw, they had been crushed in the same brutal way as protests in Russia by the opposition leader Alexei Navalny. Was there a chance for democracy in Belarus, or it was too late because the Kremlin was planning the war? I think it's in fact the other way around a little bit here. It's an interesting thing about the protests. You mentioned that they were crushed like they were there were protests in Russia over Navalny's arrest. I think as Nina Khrushcheva said, Russia had protests, Belarus had a revolution. The protests of the 2020 were really a tectonic shift in, in Belarus. They were not, of course, anticipated by Lukashenko. He was not prepared for them. And I think the relationship between the protests, the crisis that they brought in Belarus, and uh, the full-on invasion of Ukraine, rather, um, by Russia in um, in February this year, um, they are related. I think you're absolutely right about that, but they're related in a different way. I think Lukashenko had been trying to put some distance between him and Putin and between Belarus and Russia before the protests started over some time. He was spooked, if that's if that's the right way, he was unnerved by Russia's annexation of uh, the Crimea. He didn't recognize it um, publicly until very, very recently. I think this kind of dynamics, Russia being prepared to gain territory, uh, also with the war in Donbass, of course, he did not like where things were going. Um, and had, so he began to distance from Russia. When the protests came and put Lukashenko into a corner, I mean, that this was the biggest challenge, the biggest crisis he had ever faced in his 26, 27 years in power. He turned to Russia. Russia became the only ally he had, the only friend, if you like, he had internationally to support him in this time of crisis. And Putin saw an opportunity eventually, not very immediately, but after some thinking and some sort of leaving Lukashenko to hang for a bit, he then moved into to offer support. And that meant that Belarus or, or Lukashenko and his regime more specifically were now dependent on the Kremlin. And I think, in fact, Putin's new ability to force Lukashenko to do what he wanted him to do, such as, for example, sign the integration documents that Lukashenko had been stalling on signing, or accept the presence of Russian troops on the Belarusian-Ukrainian border, only 50 miles from Kiev. That new ability of Putin to force Lukashenko to do what he needed to do, I think, played a key role in Moscow's decision to launch a full-on attack on Ukraine. Natalia, in my mind, this is very tragic how the policies of Belarusian President Lukashenko got him into the Kremlin's trap and endangered his country and his neighbors. As I understand, he transitioned from the moderate leader who tried to build the light version of the Soviet Union and to balance between Russia and the West into a bloody butcher like Putin because he provides the territory of Belarus to attack and kill other nations. The only point I would perhaps disagree uh, in this analysis is that he ever was a moderate politician, perhaps, I don't know, in some very young days of his career, perhaps. But I don't think he ever had the inclinations or the kind of the approach of a moderate politician. He is undoubtedly a dictator. 
And he is also someone who is utterly unscrupulous and will stop at nothing to remain in power. He will say anything, he will do anything to protect his position. One thing I would also question is whether he really ever was interested in restoring the Soviet Union. Playing the Soviet card was a profitable political game when it boosted his position at home, because that seemed like a popular rhetoric with uh, audiences in Belarus. But when he realized that um, you know, Putin was prepared to act, actually, to do something, to perhaps move towards this restoration or, or, as I said, to gain territory, as it happened with Ukraine. Then unification became a dangerous game to play and Lukashenko changed his tune. Very bluntly put, I think he doesn't want the Soviet Union back because he knows he won't be governing it in very, very simple terms. So this explains why he was trying to distance himself from Russia in the 2010s and also explains why he tried to play a role of a, of a peacemaker. Again, he was hedging his bets because he was trying to make himself useful, not just to Russia, not potentially Ukraine, but also to the West as the guarantor of security in the region. Hence, you know, we have Minsk protocols of 2014-2015 hosted by Lukashenko posing as a kind of moderate, security-oriented, neutral party. But of course, as we know now, when the circumstances changed for him and his position in power was threatened, that changed the whole dynamic. I would like to know your opinion, Natalia, about the late Belarus leader Stanislav Shushkevich, who, along with Boris Yeltsin of Russia and Leonid Kravchuk of Ukraine, dismantled the Soviet Union in 1991. Shushkevich passed away just recently, in May 2022, and there is some symbolism that he lived so long till 87 to finally see how Putin and Lukashenko rushed to reverse all that he achieved. I mean, the independence from Moscow. I see your point and symbolism, uh, sad symbolism, uh, that their efforts um, and the result of their efforts are now being challenged or, or attempt to be reversed by Putin. I understand Mikhail Gorbachev is also unwell. Um, he's very, very elderly and he's in hospital. So it feels like it's an end of an era in a symbolic way, but not only. You know, I've met Denislav Shushkevich on one occasion when he was a part of a panel at an academic conference in, in the United States, remembering, you know, the process and, and the episode episode of coming together in the Belovezhska forest, signing these documents that meant the Soviet Union was no more with Kravchuk and Yeltsin. I remember being struck by Shushkevich as a person. He seemed a very sincere, very genuine, very humble and down-to-earth person. He was sincere and honest and acted on principles. And I think in a way, this is probably a widely held view in Belarus as well. This was his downfall. He was in a way too honest, perhaps some said naive, less generously, to be a politician at such a difficult moment and he did his very best. Unlike many other politicians, he was, I think, guided by principles and honour and feeling what is best for Belarus and for Belarusian people. And it is unfortunate that the circumstances did not permit for such a person to remain longer in post. Who knows? You know, historians are always asking what if um, and don't really like that question very much, but but you do wonder. I felt quite glad that I've managed to, at least briefly, to, to meet this person. My next question is about the Belarusian opposition in exile. Many activists had to leave their homeland after the brutal crash on democratic protests. Do they have the potential to come back and lead Belarus after Lukashenko? 
It's quite important to clarify who we are thinking about when we talk about opposition, because and this term can cover quite a lot of groups of people. Obviously, there is Svetlana Tikhanovskaya and her team, and they're perhaps the, the, the leadership, or the pinnacle of a very large number of people who had to leave Belarus or who were already abroad and are part of the effort to make changes in Belarus. Svetlana Tikhanovskaya is a very impressive person. I've, I've never met her personally, but it seems to me that this transition that she had to make in very difficult circumstances and the way she's done it just single her out really. And I know that when she and her team were fighting in the elections and afterwards for some time, the plan was always to make sure that Lukashenko leaves and then have proper, fair, open, contested elections. She never said that I would like to stay and kind of rule and lead Belarus in the post-Lukashenko era. But I think that was then and this is now, things have changed and she had to kind of take on the mantle of leader in exile and she's done a pretty impressive job doing that and particularly with her effort in galvanizing the international community which as we know sometimes is very slow to start moving but she's done it really well and tirelessly. Why I asked about the Belarusian political opposition is because on the ground in Belarus we see the activity of partisans who organize diversions against the Russian military. And on the ground in Ukraine we see many Belarusians who volunteered to fight alongside with the Ukrainian armed forces. When Ukraine will win this war, those brave people may strengthen the political opposition to bring democratic changes to Belarus. What do you think? Well, I think you're absolutely right in that a lot of opposition activists and people who are oppositionally minded feel that the war in Ukraine and the crisis in Belarus are connected. And this is why, you know, hundreds of volunteers went to fight in, in the Kalinovsky battalion in Ukraine on the side of, of the Ukrainian armed forces, because they feel that outcome of the war in Ukraine has a direct bearing on the outcome of crisis in Belarus. I think that's true. That, that is absolutely correct. And that's why we have, yeah, as you say, a lot of volunteers in Ukraine now. They came to Ukraine looking for shelter and safety, escaping persecution back in Belarus. And now they feel they want to give something back by helping defend Ukraine. I know that there has been some negative feelings, and it's quite understandable, about Belarus on social media in Ukraine. And, and I understand why this is happening. But I also see a lot of good feelings uh, where people absolutely distinguish between the Lukashenko regime, which is involved as a collaborator in this war against Ukraine, Russia's war. And on the other hand, uh, Belarusian people, the overwhelming majority of Belarusians are against the war. An absolute majority, 90-86% of people who are against sending Belarusian soldiers to Ukraine to fight on Russia's side. There's a very strong anti-war feeling in Belarus. And we're talking about here not just people who are against Lukashenko, who are a majority, but also within the minority of Lukashenko's backers. There are still quite a lot of people who do not wish to see Belarusian soldiers go into fight in Ukraine. In a way, I think this crisis have brought Ukrainians and Belarusians closer because they do feel that, you know, involved in struggle that has some, you know, that is a common struggle. Yeah. At the end of the episodes, I traditionally ask my guests about what to expect from the future. During three months of the war, until this moment, when we talk in July 2022, Belarus didn't send its army to attack Ukraine yet. But who knows what Belarus would do next? That's a very difficult question, and that's a difficult dilemma for Lukashenko. 
he has very little room for manoeuvre, which is unusual for him. He is not in a position to argue with the Kremlin very much. He is entirely dependent on, on Moscow and Putin's goodwill. And it may well be he will find it very difficult to say no to Putin if Putin demands that the Belarusian army is involved in the fighting. On the other hand, he, I think, cannot be unaware of the fact that the anti-war feeling in Belarus is very strong. It's not at all clear how his army will respond to this. Public opinion surveys suggest that a lot of Belarusians think that um, Belarusian soldiers, if they are sent to Ukraine, will either surrender, refuse to fight, uh, lay down arms or run away. Very few people, according to these surveys, think that Belarusian soldiers will actually fight. I very much doubt that the Lukashenko regime, the military circle, are unaware. I guess the only hope for Lukashenko is that the Kremlin doesn't make that demand because the Russian army isn't really uh, well trained for that kind of military action and again isn't very reliable because it's an army of conscripts and they just would refuse to fight. At this point, I'm wrapping up this episode of my podcast about the role of Belarus in the Russian war against Ukraine. My name is Viktor Kovalenko. I am a former Ukrainian journalist and veteran. My guest today was Natalia Chernyshova, a senior lecturer in modern history from the University of Winchester, England. Please support this podcast by donating to my PayPal. Also, follow me on Twitter at Mr. Kovalenko for updates and discussions. I say goodbye, so long.